Jesse Weiss. Thank you for joining us. And I do mean us today because I am delighted to be joined by Dr. A.B. Wilkinson. Dr. Wilkinson is a history professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where he teaches courses on colonial North America, the U.S. Revolutionary Era, and early U.S. history. He has research and teaching interests in African-American history, Native American history, ethnic studies, and critical race theory. So don't tell Donald Trump about this guy. Um, anyway, today, we are here to talk about his new book, Blurring the Lines of Race and Freedom, Mulattoes and Mixed Bloods in English Colonial America. Dr. Wilkinson, or A.B., if I may, hello. Uh, thanks for taking some time to speak with us today. Hi, Jesse, and uh, thank you for inviting me uh, onto your show here today, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Awesome. Yeah, uh, I am as well. And uh, I wanted to say, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed uh, reading your book a lot. Um, you know, it, uh, one of the things that attracts me to history specifically is just like the human drama aspect. And, uh, uh, there was a lot of that in some of the subjects you were talking about. And if you would, would you mind summarizing, I guess, beyond just saying, uh, me saying it's about, uh, mulattoes and mixed bloods in colonial, uh, English America, what is the book about? Yeah. Um, you know, really, when I came to this book, I, I wanted to answer a couple questions. Uh, one was, how did people of mixed ancestry first come to be identified as multiracial? Or how did people really come to think about racial mixture in North America uh, in the United States? Uh, but the United States, of course, took me back to the colonial period if I was really going to the origins of the story. Gotcha. And then secondly, I wanted to find out what people of mixed ancestry thought about themselves and the world around them. What was their world like? What was their perspective? So those were the two questions that I started off with. And really this book gets at those questions and in, in, in answering them and looking at how people of mixed ancestry were positioned within kind of the racial hierarchy that was uh, burgeoning at the uh, 17th century uh, colonial period in North America and the Caribbean and the British colonial empire. And secondly, you know, I was able to find and it was difficult. And uh, at first people had their doubts on in my advisory board of whether or not I'd be able to find, you know, how did these people think about themselves? Right. But, and that's just because it's, it's really difficult to, to get at some of those sources of marginalized groups, people that were illiterate, didn't leave a lot of written records or primary sources of their own. But I was able to kind of read against the grain and many of the written sources and even find written sources by people of mixed ancestry uh, that spoke about their own lives. So that's really what the book is about. Uh, within, within the British colonial context, I open up a little bit with Latin America, of course, uh, because there is so much mixture throughout the Americas and specifically in Latin, what becomes Latin America. But uh, I really then use that as a jumping board to get into how the English saw things in terms of mixture and race. So that's, that's, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. Yeah, that's a, uh, exactly. Um, now, so one of the themes in the book is that these mixed ancestry people, or maybe I, I think you use the term mixed culture people uh, at, at one point in the book, or some, or you might have mentioned that, is um, the difficult choices that they could face through their lives. And um, one of the people you start with is one of the, I, he, I don't know if he's the very first uh, person of mixed ancestry in colonial uh, English America, but Thomas Rolfe in Virginia, um, who 
whose ancestry, I guess, left him with some dilemmas, I think, in his life. Um, anyway, his parents are pretty famous. Uh, would you tell us a little more about who Thomas Rolfe is? If I'm saying his name right, I'm, I, I know his father, the Rolfe, I think, I don't know if I've actually ever pronounced that correct or not. I've just uh, read the name, but. No, I, I, you know, and it's funny because sometimes I probably mispronounce these names or, you know, in some ways I would imagine that people pronounce names differently. And you can even see that. Oh, yeah, right. Well, yeah. and tell me, I've been. Rolf is fine. That's yeah, that's yeah. I, I, I just wasn't. It, no, no. And I've been, I've been saying word uh, names in Nahuatl, the the Aztec language lately. Oh, um, yeah. That was. Funny. I know they're all wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Um. So Thomas Rolf, his father is John Rolf, and his mother is Matoaka, or better known as uh, Pocahontas which was a childhood nickname, really. Uh, she revealed later on in life that her actual name was Matuaka. And she ended up taking on the name Rebecca uh, when she converted to Christianity and married Thomas Rolfe. Uh, I'm sorry, John Rolfe. Yeah, yeah. Had Thomas Rolfe, uh, their firstborn and only son. Uh, so he was of, of both uh, Powhatan and uh, English descent. And ended up, he ended up growing up in England and then came back to the colonies. And really one of the things that, you know, maybe I should have mentioned this in the opening that my book kind of gets at as well, is that people of mixed ancestry occupied these in-between spaces, or we might think of them as in-between spaces between, uh, you know, the racial terms, quote unquote, white and black, um, or white and Indian. Uh, and then there are people of mixed African and Native American ancestry too. And maybe we can get into that later on in the discussion. Yeah. But Th Thomas Rolfe, um, again, he is born in uh, the Chesapeake in uh, Senecomaca, which is uh, what the Powhatan called uh, that Virginia kind of Chesapeake Bay area. Uh, and so he's born there and his parents take this trip uh, over to England and they go to, they go to London. And um, th this is where uh, we get really the only words that, that Matuaka or Lady Rebecca Pocahontas ever spoke. Um, it was recorded uh, by John Smith. Uh, and no, uh, she did not marry John Smith. Uh, that's the Disney story, but she, she married John Rolfe, uh, who's another early settler in this colonial kind of Chesapeake, Virginia area. He's actually one of the first that starts growing tobacco in the region as well. And from the sources, we think that, um, excuse me, that's my phone there going off. From the sources, we actually believe that uh, Native Americans really were helping uh, the Virginians kind of plant and grow and cultivate some of these, uh, some people call them, the, you know, the, the crops uh, from the Western Hemisphere of the Americas, the indigenous to that area. So from the records we have, it, it looks like these cultures were very mixed from the beginning um, or intermixing. And so uh, definitely the culture cultures are always mixing, but I use the term kind of mixed heritage or people of mixed descent. Multiracial is kind of this idea around race and racial ideologies, and that's definitely being created during this time. But everyone's really a mix between their mother and their father, right? So right. Uh, multiracial is a term that, that I don't necessarily use um, a lot, but it, it it does appear in the book because I think people have become so used to use using that term or that phrase. Oh yeah. But yeah, well, and Thomas Rolfe has to make the decision to first, he grows up in England uh, because his mother passes away, Matuaka, Lady Rebecca, she passes away um, in England, uh, is buried there. And uh, her husband, John Rolfe comes back to Virginia, but leaves his son Thomas in England to be raised by uh, Thomas's uncle, um, John Rolfe's brother. And so he's raised in the English culture, uh, the Christian religion, Christian faith, but he doesn't know too much about his Powhatan ancestry, his Powhatan culture. 
And even though he was raised uh, in that culture during his infant infancy before his mother passes away, because he's probably only like one or two years old, very gotcha. young, uh, at the time of his mother's passing. And so she probably, of course, spoke to him uh, in an indigenous tongue and in, in, uh, native languages uh, from the Americas. And he is raised English and he comes back to Virginia years later. Um, I can't remember exactly how old he is, probably probably in his 20s or th around 30, I believe, if memory serves me. It's in the book. It's in the book. Is what yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, then he has to kind of make this decision. Well, you know, I, I imagine, let me say I imagine he has to make a decision of, um, you know, how close is he going to be uh, to these different cultures because he is from two very different cultures one powhatan uh native american right and then the yeah. other english european and so uh he definitely lives within the english world and ends up we believe marrying an english woman um and thomas and his and his ancestors the the rolfs uh really uh then he marries in with uh, i think the bowling family so the ralph bowlings they, they really grow up as English. And I, I don't remember if I put this in the book because it's some years down the line, but eventually I believe they, own, they even own African slaves as well. And they're a very prominent family. Um, but yeah, there's definitely reimaginings and retellings of ancestry that relates back to Pocahontas, right? You have many people in the US today that, that claim kind of that ancestry and oh, we're, you know, we, we are the descendants of Pocahontas, you know, and John Rolfe. If, if right. That's right. But uh, in actuality, probably most people have some type of Native American ancestry um, and kind of latch on to that kind of popular culture uh, and popular history of Pocahontas and that story. But it, but it is real. And there are other stories um, just like it and, and, and you know, write about those as well. And I think I was mentioning uh, another descendant the other day, just within my family, while we're on COVID lockdown, um, Johnny Depp is actually a descendant of one of the families, I believe, in, in uh, the early chapters of my book as well, Elizabeth Key and oh, cool. John Grinstead. So that's, that is, that's at least what I read. Now, I don't have the primary right. document. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John, Johnny Depp's a little bit of a mix of everything, supposedly, so... Yeah. But yeah, those are the types of stories. That's that's the long answer to um, getting at that question there. But yeah, no, and that and uh, and and uh, before we move on to, I think you spend some time uh, in the book talking about. Uh, I, I guess if we lived in the 16 or 1700s, the term for a mixed race person in the English colonial world would just be mulatto, and that would be regardless if what your mixed ancestry was. Um, I thought that was kind of like uh, in comparison, I guess, to the, the Spanish world where they've got names for everybody. They're really interested in, I guess, in categorizing everyone. Um, and the English, it, it, you could be a, a mulatto might be someone who is mixed with uh, African-American or Native American uh, ancestry or wasn't. It, I thought it was interesting that it wasn't always clear Um Right. who these mulattoes were, I guess, or what their ancestry was. Yeah, yeah, especially in the Chesapeake. Um, and, and you're right, the English do not have nearly as many names or terms to use to that they use to define people of mixed ancestry. Uh, usually mulatto, there's another term that they do borrow from the Spanish. I, I, a lot of the racial terms that the English use, most of them uh, are borrowed from the Spanish. But they, the English also use the term musty uh, pretty regularly uh, in the Carolinas, the Carolinian low country, especially around Charleston or Charlestown, um, depending upon how you want to pronounce that one. Um, and so, yeah, they, ha they have a few terms, half blood, mixed blood, people of mixed blood. These are the terms that the English use, but mulatto definitely is the one used most often for a person of mixed African, uh, European, and sometimes Native American ancestry or, or the mixtures between those three groups as well. 
usually mulatto is the term, but you, you do see, excuse me, this term musty pop up very often in, in the lower Carolinas and other places as well, but specifically in the lower Carolinas. And, and they're, they're shortening, the English are shortening the Spanish mestizo. And I've got that documented and, and, and pretty well proven in the book as well. That they're just, you know, the English are shortening musti from mestizo. But a lot of these terms, the French use mati, which is, you know, really if you're kind of slurring the language a little right. bit, mati, musti, um, you know, mestizo. That's something that I was kind of editing the book and I'm like, oh my gosh, wait a minute, all these words kind of very sound, you know, very similar in ways. And so you, you see in the book how Spanish mulattoes are entering into uh, English territories as well. And, and they're bringing these terms um, along with their mixed heritage as well into the English colonies. Um, now, one thing, I guess it shouldn't really have surprised me that much, but I, I guess I, I, I wasn't really familiar with the number of, lo of laws that are being passed in the Chesapeake, especially during the 17th century, regarding mixed ancestry people and uh, uh, this like constant refining of the, of, of the legality of who these people are. And uh, I, if you want to get into that process a little bit, that, that would be great. And in addition, um, this thought I had to myself, and, and later we'll, we'll talk about this, it'll be even more clear. Uh, since like Virginia and I guess Maryland, they're so dominated politically and economically by tobacco farmers um, who I, right. I guess these often are the legislators who are making these laws. And I mean, would you, I mean, so we're, we're to be clear, I, I want to, are we, we're talking about, are we talking about people who are voting to enslave their own children? In, in some cases. And this is an interesting point uh, that you bring up. Yes, there are these planter politicians. It, it, you know, tobacco planters are the wealthy of the day. It's, it's not too much unlike, you know, if you want to think about who's in politics, I mean, who's the president right now, you know, right. a lot of business people, a lot of wealthy millionaires and billionaires. Um, you know, though, I think one of the, the things about the U.S. is we do have people that kind of come up and uh, from nothing or very little and are able to become uh, socioeconomically mobile. But during this time, that's, that's very difficult uh, in this time period. You, you do see some of that, but there's a class hierarchy and the, the class hierarchy is um, intersected with the, the racial hierarchy that is created. And, and the wealthy really are the ones who uh, create that racial hierarchy through the law and within labor systems and around uh, servitude and slavery. And so this is what these planters are doing uh, in terms of creating a racial ideology to keep people in perpetual bondage. And Africans and Native Americans are eligible for slavery or lifelong servitude. Europeans are definitely there in servitude, but usually uh, those indentures or those contracts that they're signing uh, over in Europe and you know England, um, many coming from Ireland as well. In the you know I'm talking about the 17th kind of century um, period, but they'll sign their labor for for passage, you know, in exchange for uh, the price of passage over to the Americas. And, and the land in the Caribbean or in North America, where they'll serve out their time for that voyage, for the, for the price of that voyage. And this is the class we're talking about. But then when you start to get into, you know, Native Americans and Africans being brought in to these places, uh, that, ser that service looks different, right? Because it's lifelong bondage, it's hereditary, very difficult to get out of it. Um, as the years go on, there's, there's some mobility in the earlier periods, but uh, what happens is you see these laws that are, that are first written to distinguish between Europeans and non-Europeans, and they're usually based on religion, uh, Christians, um, those of the Christian faith, 
And these laws quickly are understood by Africans and Native Americans who are converting to Christianity. And so what happens when an African slave says, well, I'm a Christian now, these laws shouldn't hold me in bondage any longer. And these Africans uh, take their case to court and the court's fine. Hey, you know, these laws are written for Christians. And if one can prove that they're baptized, have godparents, are practicing the faith, they get their freedom. And so the planters quickly realize, well, we need, we need to create another category. We need to keep uh, these people in bondage uh, through a different means uh, of oppression, really. And this is where race and how race is created in the Americas. And the Spanish are already uh, involved in this process, though there's a little bit of mo mobility, I would argue, uh, within the Latin American context. The English, the racial system gets constructed within the 17th century, Chesapeake and the Caribbean. Uh, that's, that's really where other historians, it's not just me who have found that. I'm, I'm really borrowing from uh, the work of a lot of the greats who have come before me and written books on Virginia and, and the Caribbean and such. But when you get to mixed people, this is, this is where I really kind of pull apart and look at, okay, how did these racial laws not only get instituted, but if you look at the first racial laws, like the first laws that are uh, kind of designating who will be a slave and who is eligible for slavery, they're talking about the children. They talk about, well, because of the problems that have come up with these mixed children, uh, we don't know where to place, say, the child of, of, of an African father and a European mother. And they have to, you know, well, the planters, I, don't, I shouldn't say they have to get creative to put these people in slavery. They, it's a choice. And, and they choose right. to um, create laws that keep people of mixed ancestry in bondage for as, as long as they can. Now, the difference between English um, kind of inheritance law and the law around slavery is paternity versus maternity. And within English law, we know that inheritance and the estate, those things are passed down through the father, um, through the paternal line. But when slavery is concerned, it makes it difficult where these slave masters, that this is where you bring in the slave masters to say, well, you know, if, it's a European man who, who gets a, an African woman pregnant, uh, that child by paternal descent should be free. But because there is a fair amount of uh, European men fathering children with African and Native American women who, who may be in bondage, um, they get creative with the law and they, and they move uh, slavery inheritance to the maternal line. And this is something that the Spanish and Portuguese are already practicing. Um, some of these things aren't even written in the books. It's really just uh, de facto that right. people are operating. Um, but then you start to get them written into law when the children, this is really where I find uh, 1660s uh, through the 1680s, Maryland and Virginia are the first to really enshrine this in law and say, well, when these children are born of an African mother and European father, they will be enslaved. But then what happens when you have these poor indentured servant women uh, having children with African or Native American men? And those men might be in bondage, might be in, in slavery. Well, then they have an escape because they have free European maternal ancestry. And so Maryland and Virginia legislators get creative and they essentially write these laws that keep these children of European mothers and African and Native American fathers in bondage for a term of 31 years. And so it's literally uh, a space in between uh, slavery, which would be lifelong, and servitude, which could be um, any number of years, but usually four to seven. Sometimes you see convict laborers, 10 years, 14 years, things of that nature. Yeah. But 31 years is, is smack dab in the middle. Uh, and, it's, and it's really just with, um, you know, I'm putting this in heavy quotations here, but these mulatto bastards and this, this, these cases of mulatto bastardy 
or where Virginia legislators and Maryland legislators get creative and institute these terms of, of 30 or 31 years. They eventually land on 31 years, but sometimes you see the early ones at 30 years. Um, so yeah, that's, and that's, yeah. that's what I found with, uh, you know, this, this story. And that's where I'm um, finding that, that people of mixed ancestry actually occupy in, in many cases an in-between uh, area uh, between white and black slavery and freedom. Um, yeah, no, and I thought that was very striking. The, the, the difference in the length of, of uh, indentures uh, that you mentioned in the book, that was very, very striking. Um, and, and you mentioned that, uh, and I think some people might be surprised that, I, I think it's not that surprising, I guess, that any, uh, to anybody who's listening that uh, men who own women as slaves would uh, be essentially sometimes raping them or, you know, taking advantage of that situation. But I think some people might be surprised uh, to find that there are, or were a lot of, even in this very stratified society back then, uh, unions between uh, African or black, black fathers and white uh, mothers. And uh, yeah. one example, and I, I think you're a very good storyteller in the book, and you give a lot of examples, not mm -hmm. uh, of just these individuals who that I appreciate. And one in particular, um, I thought you might want to share with uh, the listeners is uh, Anthony or Tony Longo and his family. And uh, would you mind sharing a little bit about who uh, he was and, and who this family was and some of the, the struggles that they faced in, uh, in the 17th century, I believe, if I've written that down correctly? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I really try to tell as much of the story as I can. And really with the 17th century, you know, you're looking at records that are, that are 400 years old. And, and, you know, when we go back to the 1600s, so they're piecemeal, yeah. uh, damaged in a lot of cases. The, the writing is very difficult to read. And the 17th century cursive is uh, now my forte, but is for anyone having to, to learn it, it's, it's very difficult. But, you know, I, I try to piece together as many of the stories as I can. And the Longo family is an interesting one. Um, Anthony or, or Tony Longo is one of the first Africans in uh, the, the Virginia area. And we believe that he gets his freedom uh, at an early age uh, from the documentation that we have. And this, again, is kind of that one, that first generation, uh, the Ira Berlin calls them the charter generation, I believe, of, of slaves that come in. And, and there are arguments that these slaves actually were able to operate more like indentured servants and able to get their freedom after a time of servitude. And we do have records that some do, uh, though it's clear that, that most Africans probably were maintained in bondage, um, definitely during the 17th century. So Tony Longo has children. We know by one of European descent because his children are labeled as mulatto. It's not clear exactly who the mother is, uh, and, you know, and I will try to stay out of the woods, um, you know, and just kind of, or the weeds of the woods, I suppose. But Tony is, is one who operates within uh, Virginia as a free man. Uh, free man of color, I guess we would say, right? And he, over his lifetime, sees his rights erode over the course of, of the, the 17th century. And that's because race, race is being uh, crystallized, race is, as, as an ideology uh, is being attached more to people of African descent and slavery and kind of that, that dishonor and disrespect that uh, we know is, is very historic within the US and in colonial period, that, that, that is really being formed uh, during this time. And so from the records I've found, uh, he's an independent man, uh, farms his own land, um, like several other uh, and probably dozens of others of free African uh, families in the, in the Virginia colony. Um, and his children are indentured and really taken away from him because he falls into poverty 
Uh, he at some point is not able uh, to financially support his children in some ways. Now, again, that, that this is somewhat unclear because the records I'm using are court records where he's, he's having to take his case to court just to try to hold on to his children uh, and keep them from being uh, indentured out or essentially taken out of his household and put into the households of other wealthy European uh, families in the, in the Chesapeake. And so he writes the court uh, asking that his children be returned to him. Uh, he, he's able at least to get a daughter, I think, um, out of servitude. And then uh, his son, James, is the one I follow a little bit. Uh, and James Longo is able to get out of uh, his indenture and ends up becoming moderately successful from, from everything that we can tell, though I found his case uh, later on. And some other people have also written about James Longo as well. But he, he's able to uh, make a way for himself. I believe the family are carpenters and they do work for others in their community. And... Uh, James, like his father, also gets into some trouble um, at times with, with the law. And some of those cases are very interesting because you, you can kind of see the resilience and the resistance, the struggle of this family through the generations. Um, Anthony going into poverty, uh, trying to just hold on to his children in his old age so he's able to care for them and so, they're, so his children are able to care for him. And uh, James ends up uh, getting into some uh, similar legal issues and goes to court over getting into arguments with neighbors and things of that nature. But from what I can tell, he buys his own land. He, he's able to farm his own land and is able to, to eke out a moderate successful life for himself as a person of mixed descent or someone who's labeled as a mulatto. And some of that uh, I attribute to what I found in many other cases is where these people of mixed ancestry uh, do have a little more leeway than their African parents. And they're able to operate within society with, with a certain type of privilege uh, at times. Now, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes there's a mulatto privilege or a mulatto advantage, but obviously being of mixed descent also puts you at a disadvantage because you have African and Native American ancestry that uh, Europeans and the elite who the colonial elite are in power and they look down on these people as well. And the laws are not in their favor uh, much of the time and uh, the treatment that they get uh, is discriminatory, uh, prejudiced, and they, they have to work a little harder than the other European colonists in order to make a way uh, out of no way sometimes. So that's, that's a little bit about that story. And please ask follow-up questions if you want, since I can go oh, on. Oh, that's all right. Um, you, you bur um, when you mentioned that uh, uh, being a mixed ancestry, if, if you were, say, if I guess uh, being mixed ancestry could help you, uh, I guess, if you were an enslaved in some ways, one way that you you talk about how some mulattoes were able to, uh, at any rate, uh, I guess, take a, make a legal case to fight for their freedom. And especially in some of the Northern colonies, uh, they use religion, like you were mentioning earlier, I guess, as part of that case. And it, it strikes me that certainly would not have been possible for uh, an African-American slave uh, to bring a case like that, or I presume at it's very much more difficult to get a case in the court, at least. It's, it's more difficult. And you again, you find it in the 17th century um, with anyone who's enslaved. They'll say, look, I'm, I'm Christian. Um, and so there are Africans who do get their freedom based upon Christianity. One other, well, there are several other cases, I guess. I won't pick out just one, but um, yeah, there's... You know, and I really, I should also bring up the ideology of hypodescent, which I haven't explicitly oh, talked about. You know, about, I think but... I meant, I think I meant to ask you specifically uh, to talk about that, and I might have, I may have skipped that somehow. But yeah, please. Um, and also briefly, one more question I thought of uh, regarding t Tony Longa, Do, re since he he 
he lived and had a little bit of success in his life in the in the 1600s. Do you think after you know 30 or 40 years later, after all of these new laws took in, in into effect, is a little bit speculation. Do you think uh, his success would have been possible uh, had he been born right. 50 years later? Right, right, and and. That's a great question, and and I can dovetail that into the, the hypodescent kind of answer. Yeah, um, please. So there is another case with the Davis family and uh, a young woman named Rose, Rose Davis, and she does use this um, kind of Christian, uh, kind of Christian cultural um, attributes to sue for her freedom. Uh, after a time of service and say, look, I'm not a slave. Um, her mother comes in and actually uh, gives testimony as well for her. Her mother, Mary Davis, comes in and says, look, my, my daughter, uh, Mary is, is from England. Uh, she talks about her family uh, being English and of you know, the Christian faith. And her daughter, Rose, is mixed, a, a mixed uh, African and, and European ancestry. Uh, their father is African, um, Rose, and, and one of her brothers. And her mother actually says in this court case that my daughter is of a Christian race. And, my, you know, she repeats it a few times. My daughter is of a Christian race. She talks about being from England, um, talks about that English ancestry, that connection to Christianity. And, and she says explicitly, I say this here to show you that my daughter is of a Christian race. And her freedom case is denied. And this is around, I, I wanna say around 1715, if memory serves me correctly. And, and so by the early 1700s, no, Christianity does not get you freedom. And so you can see over the generations, how the laws are changing. And I document that as well, uh, but just how these ideas of race are changing as well. Um, race before could be cultural in, in, in some of these things tied to maybe the Christian faith uh, in the 1600s. But again, that, that shift to uh, the understandings around race being tied to whether it be, you know, there, we wouldn't use the term biology back then, um, but, but ancestry, right? Um, and African or Native American ancestry being kind of non-white. Uh, even the English don't really use white uh, in law until the 1680s, which is relatively late if you think about Jamestown being 1607, yeah. right? Um, and, and so really where I can kind of tie in hypodescent here, I think with, um, you know, going back to the Longo family, uh, hypodescent is just the ideology, basically, you know, it's a racial ideology or um, you know, something that I've worked on. Other, other people have, have talked about hypodescent, but I think I really flesh it out in a way that other historians have not done yet. And hypodescent is just the understanding that if you have parentage from two different backgrounds, as we all do, and those parents are from two different levels on a racial ladder, that the child will occupy the status of the, the subjugated parent or the lower status parent. Um, you know, and I'm applying it to race here, but we could talk about caste and caste right. system um, and just say, you know, a child uh, from two different castes or parentage has parents from two different castes would occupy closer to the lower caste status. And, you know, we know about the one drop rule in the United States, uh, that if you have one African ancestor for a long time, that's that made you African or African-American. You can think about Barack Obama, right? And, and how he has a father from, from Kenya um, and a mother who's of European descent from Kansas. And, and so, but Obama's black, right? You know, quote unquote, black or, or right. black. And, and so in the United States, this is, this is something that, um, you know, many of us are familiar with uh, still around today, you know, that idea of the one drop rule, very, um, very applicable during the Jim Crow era, where you needed to uh, distinctly and explicitly be able to tell 
who is going to sit on the back of the bus, who is going to drink out of the, the, the colored water fountains, right? And so we've had this understanding, you know, of, well, if you have some African ancestry, well, you're African-American, right? You're black. Um, or during this time, they use the racial term Negro. And so what I've found is that, that the one drop rule does not apply in the colonial period. And again, as, as I've already pointed out, these people uh, who are termed mulatto have uh, the leeway sometimes to occupy these middle spaces. And that's what, that's what some and many of mulattoes, but not all. I mean, most mulattoes, most people of mixed heritage during this time are still in lifelong bondage. They would still be in slavery. But even in, even in slavery, uh, I found, and others have found this as well, right? That uh, mulatto slaves many times occupy a higher status within, within uh, the plantation, uh, slave hierarchies, uh, things of this nature, people of, of mixed blood or some European ancestry uh, are looked upon during this time as, as somewhat higher than someone of full African descent. And so that, that's really what I'm talking about when, when I'm talking about hypodescent, that that mixed ancestry elevates you compared to those who are fully colored or African and Native American. Um, but that mixed ancestry will bring you down lower than someone who's European um, or quote unquote white racial. Gotcha. So there are these middle grounds or these middle, excuse me, these middle spaces uh, in between the races. And um, yeah, that's, that's really what I'm talking about when I'm looking at these monoracial categories and, and people who, who um, really break out of, of uh, what we think about in monoracial categories. And in some ways, the monoracial categories, again, are created right. to keep these children uh, aligned more with the, the subjugated ancestry or, or the perceived inferior ancestry, which is African and Native American. Got it. Um, I'd like to move into the to the 18th century and specifically... Uh, before you know, before we get finished with this, the one thing I definitely want to talk about uh, more than anything is something that you wrote about in the book that literally gave me goosebumps when 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 I read this passage. It's about a letter that was written in 1723, um, I believe, from South Carolina, and it was sent to the Bishop of London, but uh, by, by the bishop to the Bishop of London by an author who identifies himself. I know what letter you're talking about. Yeah. The Virginia Mulatter's letter, right? Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. And, and the guy who signs it, he says, uh, you know, quote, as for myself, I am my brother's slave, but my name is secret, unquote. Uh, would you like to t please talk about that letter? Uh, I yeah. thought it was fascinating. That's, that's an interesting one. That's a great one. Um, so I did not discover this letter. Uh, another historian um discovered this letter and it was filed away in some weird place uh, where it shouldn't have been. And we think that even though the letter originates in Virginia, that it might have went through Jamaica because it, I, I believe if memory serves me, it was in some of those records um, within the British, it might have been the British archives actually. And it's a letter from people who identify themselves as, as slaves and identify themselves as, they write it as Virginia mulatters. And the language is very, um, or the writing is very difficult to read because there are a lot of misspellings. Uh, I kept all the misspellings and everything in the book um, because I, wa I wanted to get, again, I, I really like getting as close to the sources as possible, but you pick up that these people are uh, struggling, right? that they are working to, to become literate. Uh, you know, they're working in secrecy to even write this letter, but they're, they're writing it to the new bishop in London, um, the head of the Anglican church, um, or, or one of the heads, right? And they are really writing it as a petition. It's a plea to consider that, you know, they, they're identifying themselves of English ancestry and saying, hey, we are uh, treated worse than dogs. You know, we are um, 
you know, our, our brother's masters, right? So they're, they're insinuating there or explaining really that uh, they are the children of their masters and their master's slaves. And, and they identify that some of them have European mothers, some of them have European fathers, um, but they all consider themselves slaves. And I found that really interesting because by law, as I had mentioned before, those mulattoes who had English mothers should technically be what? They should be free or, free or indentured or, or yeah. yeah. But they say that we are enslaved for life. And, and so one of the other things I found in the book is, is that, well, that I illustrate in the book is that even though on the books, it says 31 years for these quote unquote mulatto bastards, in practice, de facto, these children are oftentimes being held for life. And the masters are selling the indentures or selling the people and keeping the indentures or changing the indentures, they're forging papers, or they just conveniently lose the, the indentures. Um, and this is one of the things that I found with how, how power works in the colonial era with mixed people is that the cards are stacked against them legally yeah. uh, and in practice. Um, you know, because who holds the, the master holds the indenture, you know, and so you're thinking, well, this child uh, might not even know their origins, they might not know uh, the laws. And really, the master is supposed to be obligated to free these children, but many times the, the economic incentive is not there, right? The economic incentive, uh, yeah, this master, keep the people in bondage for as long as possible. So and that, in fact, that's I one thing about the left. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and I think I think I think you might even mention, in fact, too, even for a master who may intend on freeing his children. Uh, I think there were cases. I think you mentioned cases where where that person dies, and yeah. the someone else in the will or the bank or whoever uh, may just seek to sell uh, children who may have theoretically supposed to have been free um just to cover you know you know uh, debts i guess or stuff like that um, yeah a lot a lot of the the family members that maybe got cut out of the will or didn't get as much as they thought they should or um executors of the estate um there there are a lot of people that have a vested interest in keeping uh, as many people in bondage as they can for as long as they can and so these, these, in the case of the Virginia Mulatters letter, uh, these are the people, and, and this is exactly where I was able to pick up on their voices. I mean, I had their voice right there in, in this two to three page letter, and they're identifying themselves as Christian, very much so. Uh, we're versed in the Bible, and that is why they're making this plea uh, to the head, head of the church uh, in England to consider our freedom. Um, and it, it's a very moving uh, letter. It's a very moving story. And you really, you really pick up on, on just how dire their situation is and, and what they're going through. Um, you know, re really, uh, that is one of the stories that really moved me the most. And I think that's why I opened up chapter, uh, what is it, chapter four with it. And so, yeah, I really uh, appreciate that, that you appreciated that story because it was yeah. really, really close to my heart as well. Yeah, and a part of me was wondering if, uh, well, I mean, obviously, I, I, I think it's very easy to empathize with someone who would say, uh, I can't really give you my name. Uh, and I, it, part of me was recently wondering if that's... Uh, it, it would would that be pretty common? I guess more common back then, where someone I, I guess for some of these Milano slaves who would not be able to say their name. Yeah, I, I assume that that, yeah. that he would not be the only person who really isn't allowed to to say that. I guess. Yeah, let let me explain that that part a little bit. I could go a little bit further there. Um, the letters written in seventeen twenty three. And we believe that 
there were a number of slave conspiracies in the early 1720s, 1722 around then in Virginia. And so the awareness of the, the European population in, in the colonial Virginia, uh, they're very aware of slave movements. Um, you know, they've got their ears open for anything that they could look like a, a conspiracy for rebellion or revolt. And so any slaves that are found, gotcha. um, you know, making making any pleas for right. freedom, joining together to write a letter, because there's one person who's literate in writing this letter, but this person uh, is representing uh, a number of people. He identifies. We, we believe it's a he. I would. I believe it's a he, though I'm not sure. It, it could be a woman, uh, though. Um, you know, it's more likely that, that it would have been a man during this time. And, and, and some of the language used leads me to believe that it could have been a, a mulatto man. But um, he's representing men and women, I assume, in the letter yeah. and saying, hey, we, we are treated this way. Um, they're joining together in secret. And, and he does use that language. He says, look, my, we're meeting in secret. Um, my name is secret. Um, definitely doesn't sign it. You don't know who wrote it, but uh, ev everything about the letter rings true in terms of what we know about the situation of the people in these positions. And if this person and these people were caught joining together, uh, making a plea for mass liberation is essentially what it is. It um, could be really one of the first letters from any slave uh, in, in colonial Virginia. I'm not aware of, of any writing from a slave earlier than 1723, though. We're always finding new stuff, and I'm sure somebody's got a book out there somewhere with something, but um, it's, it's a very early look, uh, you know, first-person look, really, at what life is like for, for the slave and for uh, people of mixed heritage in bondage. And so, yeah, if, if they're caught, I, I, I think there's a line and I have to open up the book and, and page through it, but yeah. I, I think he even says, the writer, the anonymous writer even says, uh, you know, if I were to be caught with this letter, I would swing upon the gallows tree. And, um, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's the, the, the reality of punishment is there and it's it's very real it comes through in the letter and from everything that i know about this time um you know we're talking about torture we're talking about uh death or banishment uh for yeah uh, lead to insurrection like this um i think uh one of the Guess how do I want to frame this? I guess one of the real tragedies, I guess, of of the rise of hypo descent and all of this is that uh, uh, many Africans and Native Americans and mixed heritage people, uh, you say, also quote imbibe this philosophy unquote, um, and this gives birth to colorism. Um, would you mm. like to talk about what what is colorism and uh, what's the impact of this? Uh, uh, for 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 mixed people and 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 uh, for others, I guess you know, just for African Americans and everything, I suppose too, yeah. for sure. So skin skin color preference and treatment, uh, people, you know, basically colorism is people with lighter skin are more likely to advance in society. It's something that we see today. Uh, it's something that we see in the past, and. Not many historians, I find, have really, there are references to the house slave, you know, being more likely to be of mixed heritage, but that's not always the case, actually, when, when you look back at, at some of the records. Um, def definitely is true that mulatto slaves oftentimes hold higher positions within the plantation system, but not always. And dark-skinned Africans uh, work in the houses as well, the master's house, and, and sometimes hold high positions as well. But the general trends, and there, there are some studies that have, that have shown this, uh, I believe in the early U.S. period, but, but no one's really gone back to the colonial period 
as far back as I've gone and, and really kind of tried to unpack wh where does this colorism come from? Where does this idea that the lighter skinned slave will have some type of preferential treatment come from? And we really could see it almost in, in the last letter that we talked about by those Virginia Mulatters because they're making the argument really in that letter. And I, I kind of right. cracked that big open a little bit. They're, they're not arguing for mass slave liberation for everyone. They're saying, we are mixed. We deserve our freedom because we have some English ancestry and we're Christians, right? Um, and so this idea of colorism really is born in the colonial period, I would argue. And I have documented it in places, but again, it's really hard to find because you don't have records written by slaves saying in the slave quarters, well, I get treated poorly because I'm, I'm darker skinned within the slave community. But that person who's mixed over there, they have lighter skin, um, maybe some European features, um, a smoother hair texture. These, these are the things within the African-American community that, that we know. And, and I guess I really didn't identify myself as a person of mixed descent myself, but um, you know, I'm of African, European, and Native American ancestry myself. And, and we know within the African-American community uh, that there's light skin privilege, uh, even if you're, we're all African Americans right. to some degree. And, and so this, this place of social advancement, um, you know, is in the slave quarters, it's in the colonies, uh, it's, it, it is imbibed by people of mixed ancestry uh, as well. And there, there were some cases where I was able to find people of mixed descent who say, well, we, we don't associate with Negroes, quote unquote. Um, and you, you find it and you got to write about it. I mean, it's not, yeah. it, it's not something that, you know, you're happy about to find. <laughs> right. Kind of in, imbibing the philosophy of the master, but this, this is, um, how would I say it in, in, you know, Sometimes the word white supremacy, I, I know can be jarring for people, but this is how white supremacy works, right? Is that even people of color will borrow from or adopt um, the philosophy of the master. And that's what you have with uh, colonization. And this is what you have within communities of color in the colonial period and, and sometimes even uh, up to today. Yeah, and I guess, uh... I want to say thank you very much for. I want to ask you one one more question, I guess, uh, before, before I let you go. But um, uh, we didn't. You, you talk about this a bit in the book. We have, we haven't really spoken about it, but how there's there's different. I, I guess there were the Chesapeake is only in, in the colonial period. You're really talking about multiple British Americas, kind of almost, and they're very similar in some ways, but. Um, you mentioned that it's the Chesapeake, uh, and and this is why you studied the the Chesapeake colonially. Is that's the 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 quote the incubator for the more stringent version version excuse me of hypo descent philosophy that came to dominate in the United States unquote. Why why the Chesapeake? Uh, why why what is it? Because it it, it like Charleston has more it, it seems like I, I don't know if there's a if there is a really an answer to this or if you have an idea but it seems like maybe charleston would uh have more clear laws i guess or whatever their version you know if you, if you understand what i'm saying what i'm getting at if that makes right, any right. sense yeah yeah why why the chesapeake and i, I saw a call the, the epicenter i think um of hypo descent uh as well and it comes down to demographics. Demographics is the quick answer. I mean, I don't, this book is what, 250 pages? Yeah, no, it doesn't have to be a complicated answer sometimes. It, it, it's, uh, it, it is nuanced, but really when we look at demographics, and that's another thing that I was able to, fortunately, in, in painstakingly, but I got a lot of help from uh, the people that have come before me and the books that I've read and uh, some of my research assistants who quantified a lot of data for me as well. And I got to give them a shout out because I was able to look at the numbers and, and then uh, really just with my other expertise around some of these histories, able to ascertain that 
South Carolina and the low country uh, looks more like the Caribbean. In the Caribbean, you're talking about eight, nine out of 10 people in the Caribbean are of African uh, ancestry. And so mixture isn't quite um, demonized in the same way gotcha, that it is yeah. in places where there's a more even mix of European and African peoples. And in the Chesapeake, I, I, you know, it's the earliest English, successful English colony, right? Uh, but there's also a settler colonialism there that's, that's very unique and that they really try to separate themselves first from Native American peoples. And then even though they're bringing in Africans for labor, they do try to keep the races separate in a very early period uh, of North American history. And so this is where you get the Chesapeake being kind of the incubator for the stringent versions of hypodescent. Uh, there are large populations in, in Virginia, in Maryland uh, to start uh, that exceed the low country in South Carolina and even some of the Caribbean islands. Uh, and this is where you will have the fear of mixture amongst Europeans yeah. and especially the elite. And again, I would tie it back maybe to the earlier parts of our conversation in that the elite wanna keep power and in order to keep power, you have to have control of labor, or at least that's one method. Again, I shouldn't say you have to, that's a choice. That's a choice that they make. I have to remind my students this yeah. too. I think sometimes the way we look at history and you look back and you say, well, they had to do it this way or they had to have slavery. No, yeah. Power this way. Not necessarily. You can keep power by treating people fairly and, and being just and equitable leaders too. That's another way to keep power. But they, they choose to do it another way, right? And so they're trying, the leaders, again, the, these planter politicians are trying to keep the peoples separate in order to maintain control over labor. And so this is really where they must distinguish between who is white and who is black, or they choose, again, they choose to distinguish who is white and who is black, and they choose to locate people of mixed ancestry along with those of African descent, African and Native American descent, because there, there is Native American slavery and servitude as well. And, and so that's really why the Chesapeake in, in, in the short and quick of it, uh, they have a large indentured servant population as well. And those servants are also mixing in with Africans and Native American slaves. And so this is really where those elites see a problem with mixture and, and really almost in a way create uh, uh, the idea that there is a racial mixture problem. And this is something that is an ideology that carries over and carries down and recreates and is structured uh, differently over the time for the next 300 plus, you know, probably about 300 years into the uh, 1900s and the Jim Crow era and 1967 with uh, Loving versus Virginia where the Supreme Court finally got rid of laws that prevented so-called interracial mixture or what right. they called miscegenation by that time. And the Supreme Court in the 1967 case of Loving versus Virginia overrules these anti-miscegenation laws and gets rid of them. But uh, again, my, my book is trying to go back and find out how they ever got to these understandings. Yeah, well, I, I like I want to say, like, again, I, I think you do an excellent job of that. The uh, folks for for if you're listening, yeah, the the I, I guess as far as the legal history of this goes, this is an excellent book. And uh uh, Dr. Wilkinson, I want to say thank you very much for your time. Uh, I didn't tell, I don't think I mentioned this to you earlier unless I emailed it to you. I am going to put a link to your, uh, I see your website on there. I think it's got a link to your book on there as well in the show notes for this episode. And if not, I'll, 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 I'll put a separate, I'll give you a couple of links in there. Um, well, uh, yeah, it was a delight to, no. to chat with you. 
And uh, anybody out there listening who is interested into history for the same reasons I am, the human drama of it all, I highly recommend this book, which is, once again, Blurring the Lines of Race and Freedom, Mulattoes and Mixed Bloods in English Colonial America. Uh, all right, folks, thanks. Hey, fellow pirates, come and listen what I say. The captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey. I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command. So let's drop him on an island and leave him in the sand. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. And now we're taking over the ship. It's a mutiny. Hey, mighty captain, haven't you heard what's happening here? You're no longer in control, and we're drinking up your beer. This is now a democratic, egalitarian pirate ship, so enjoy your trip. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. This is a mutiny. And now we're taking over the ship. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. And now we're taking over the ship. <laughs>